we believe the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of the true and living God, our only infallible rule of for faith and practice. The passage will be I'll be preaching from is from the book of Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight. Isaiah chapter six verses one through eight. This is the holy word of God. Let us pay attention to his word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each has six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there is none like you. You alone are high and lifted up and worthy of our worship. Thank you for giving us the book of Isaiah. We ask that the Holy Spirit would tune our hearts toward yours and shape our mind by the power of your word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, this passage, a glorious passage indeed, of course all passages in the Bible are glorious, but this particular passage separates Christianity from all other religions. Whether it's Islam, Buddhism, or Hinduism. This passage is glorious 
marvelous and wondrous. It shows us the glory of God in His sovereignty, transcendence, holiness. And the glory of God in His remedy for sin. And the glory of God in His divine calling. First, the glory of God in His sovereignty, transcendence, holiness. In the opening verse of this chapter, we see the great glory of God. It's just like God pulled back the veil of His own splendor to reveal the awesomeness of His sovereignty. And you get a sense of that sovereignty by what Isaiah saw in in verse 1. I saw the Lord. The word Lord here is, is Adonai in the Hebrew, which signifies sovereignty. I, uh, Isaiah, in a word, saying, I saw Adonai, the sovereign one, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, now, when we read this, this verse, we have to ask, what this vision? We, why is this vision important to the people of Isaiah's day? What the people of his day long to know about? After all, the chapter opens with a precise reference to a significant event in the year that King Uzziah died. That was probably around 740 BC. That, uh, this year probably doesn't mean much to you and me in this 21st century, but it was important for the people back then. Why? Because this year was a turning point in the history of nations. According to Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah had reigned over the southern kingdom, Judah, for half a century. It was the time in which the war of defense had been held secure by this very effective king and an able military leader. He was a strong king, a good king. And under his leadership, the nation Judah had expanded and grew strong. The country had entered into an era of prosperity and peace. People had put their hope and trust upon this earthly king. But now we read this is the year of his death. This is not good news. It was a critical time. Moreover, in the northern kingdom, King Jeroboam had also died. So everybody wonder what's next. What will happen to us? And further north, the Assyrian army 
saw a frightened Judah and ready to attack Judah any moment where Isaiah lived. There's going to be a lot of trouble ahead. And into that state of extreme confusion, into that darkest hour of history, there was this wondrous heavenly temple that Isaiah saw with the creator Lord sitting on his throne. According to the Jewish culture, the higher the throne, the greater the one who sat upon it. The higher the throne, the greater the power. So Adonai, the sovereign Lord, sat on the throne and it was high, exalted, beautiful, impressive, with the train of his robe filling the temple, and the robe flowed out the back of the throne all the way down to the floor of the temple and kept right on going, going, fill the back of the temple. Now, if you have ever watched a you know, royal well, wedding, in a royal wedding, the train of the bride's wedding dress often trails along the ground. Long, long, long. Very long, right? Trail along the ground. And you see, the longer the train of the robe, the more dignity the person. The richer the person. So it will be dragged halfway down the church. So the length of the rope that Isaiah saw by the Lord spoke of the majesty and the wealth of the one who sat upon this high exalted throne. In other words, the majesty, the transcendence, the sovereignty of God are being displayed before us. Brothers and sisters, even though the world looks gloomy and dark, conditions do not seem hopeful. The economy takes a sharp turn for the worse, or your own life is in chaos. You're planning and everything that, that, that you have dreamed up do not work out. Or, or, or even when our church got broken into and our trailer got stolen, our stuff got taken. Nonetheless, there is the God King in heaven sitting on his throne. Our circumstances are crashing down in Disaster or, or, uh, from a human perspective. And yet God still rules heaven and earth. And, the, and as the earthly king Uzziah lay dying, the true sovereign king was reigning, living. This is a great message of our sovereign God. 
the affairs of mankind may seem to be disorganized. They seem to be undone totally, and yet the message is, Our Lord God Almighty reigns. Our Heaven's King is still in control. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. This is the God whom you and I serve. The God whom we proclaim. The majestic, the majestic God who continues to control the affairs and destiny of nations, of our churches, and of our individual lives. And that wonderful message is the one we proclaim to the world. But it's not just the sovereignty of our heavenly God that Isaiah is pointing to. He is a holy God. He is fully, God is fully set apart from anything that would stain His glory. God is different from anything and anybody else. God is morally righteous and His perfect righteous character is maintained by His position in heaven, high and exalted. None of the sin of mankind touches God. Now the religion of Islam claims that their God, Allah, is holy and unknowable. He is so, Allah is so transcendent, so exalted, that no human being can ever personally know Allah. While according to the Bible, God clearly reveals to us that He is holy, transcendent, and yet knowable. This is what separates Christianity from all the, all the religions. Even though God's holiness supersedes everything out of this world, He can be known. This too is the God whom you and I serve. The God whom we go out there and proclaim. The Holy God who is utterly pure and utterly separate from sin, but he can be known. And to drive home the meaning of that holiness, we have verses 2 and 3. There were the seraphim, these heavenly beings, each with six wings, but they do these amazing things. With two they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, and with two they flew. Why do these seraphim cover their faces and feet? They cover their head and the feet to remind you that they are in the presence of the Holy God. So amazing is the purity of God who is untouched by defile and imperfection and that His radiance is so intense in His holiness that the seraphim of heaven not only don't want to look upon it, but they don't want to be exposed 
by his radiance. And you see, even the hosts of heaven cannot stand to be in the midst of God's holiness. They get to look at God, but they can hardly bear it because if they look too long, it would destroy them. They veil their face and yet they look and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The phrase Lord of hosts means Yahweh of armies in the Hebrew. Yahweh of armies. Why is this phrase Yahweh of armies? Because the book of Isaiah has God moving armies. He moved the Assyrians to come in and destroy Israel and the Babylonians to destroy Judah because of their sins. And when he finished with these pagan nations, he will turn around and punish them. So no army can move unless God ordains it so. And this is why the phrase Yahweh of armies becomes important not only in Isaiah's time, but our time as well. You see, we particularly are living in the day and age of warfare. War, rumors of war, of army and terrorists. But we must understand no matter how confusion the situation looks, God is in control of the armies. He is the ultimate commander-in-chief. Not President Trump. You see, Yahweh of armies means God's people can have hope in the midst of time of conflict and war. Not one soldier can move. Not one army can march without the will of our sovereign God. Now these ser seraphim, the hosts of heaven, have to give expression to what they see. What they are seeing is so wonderful that they have to have an outlet for it. So what do they do? They tell each other. Verse 4 tells us there is this thunderous exchange and dialogue going back and forth between the seraphim and the sound of their voices shakes the doorposts and thresholds of the temple of heaven as in an earthquake. It's an, it was an earthquake. That's why when you read this passage, you cannot really read it in a monotone or indifferently. Uh, this is not like some Buddhist monks chanting verses from the Lotus Sutra over, over, and over. Holy, 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 holy. No, not at all. It isn't that way at all. That isn't the right picture of the seraphim, is it? The seraphim, they're yelling their heads off. Cause the earthquake. 
holy, holy, holy. The repetition is superlative, as in high, higher, and highest. That's what they are doing to emphasize that there exists no one like God. And it's fresh every time they say it. Now God's majestic holiness is meant to overwhelm us. And of course it does overwhelm the prophet. Verse 5 tells us Isaiah felt utterly convicted by his sins and cried out about himself, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. The English word unclean is not quite describing the sinfulness that Isaiah is seeing himself. The Hebrew word means leprosy. Someone with a disease of leprosy. In effect, Isaiah is saying, because I am a man of leprous lips, lips full of leprosy, rotting flesh, disgusting smell, open running sores, pus running out, crack, bleeding, horrible to look at, disfigure, spiritually speaking. I am seeing the Holy One and my re- my response to the holiness of God is, I am cooked. I am done. <laughs> I am depraved. I am a rotten, miserable sinner. I am very unholy. This is the gospel. Isn't it? When you see the amazing, the amazing holiness of God and you perceive it for what it truly is, you cannot but be like Isaiah who feels the exposure of God's radiance and say, oh no, look at me. In the spotlight of the glory of God, I am dirty, I am ugly, I am filthy, I am vile, perverse. Utterly repugnant. And the way of, the way that Isaiah expresses that, you have to catch the significance of it. He said, I am ruined and I am a man of leprous lips. And we have to ask, why lips? Why lips? Why not his heart? Because the seraphim have been singing, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. And Isaiah recognizes that he is not holy. Isaiah knows that his lips have been, having been, used to praise himself, to put others down and serve his selfish end, could never be used in such holy service. 
his sinful lips cannot join the praise. For to sing, he would stain the melody of the heavenly song, and he probably said to himself, I cannot sing it, sing it, O Lord. I cannot participate. My leprous lips are filthy, full of disease, of sin. I would mess up your song, O Lord. You see? Isaiah see himself as sinful and condemned to die. Everything around him is crying out in praise to Hamelech, the king, the the almighty God. And he realizes that he ought to join in, but he's not fit to do so. And so he proclaimed the covenant curse upon his life. Woe is me, for I am cut off, doomed to die. It's all over. Ironically, in chapter 3, he already pronounced the covenant, covenant curse upon the rebellious people. He said, woe to the wicked. But now in chapter 6, three chapters later, Isaiah proclaimed the woe, the covenant curse for himself. Because he realizes that he is just as wicked as they are. And therefore, justly condemned to death for his sinfulness. He has nothing to argue in his own defense. He knows the certainty of his death, for he himself, a sinner in the presence of the Holy God. And then not only as Isaiah looked at himself and recognized that, what else did he also say? And I live among a people of Leprous lips. For my eyes have seen Hamelech, the king, Yahweh of armies. Isaiah not only begins to look at himself, but as he recognizes his, his, his humanity, he recognizes it's true of all. He's not only a sinner, he is surrounded by sinners. There is no one righteous. No, not one. As God says in in the book of Romans, that's not good news, but bad news. Before the holiness of God, the whole world stands condemned and hopeless. One of the reasons for the great failing in the evangelical churches today is just this failure to recognize the holiness of God and their own sinfulness. So we get a wishy-washy, watered-down gospel from the pulpit. According to a recent survey, almost half of all evangelicals say that All good people will go to heaven regardless of their faith. 
And many believe that people are basically good. I mean, these are the people who claim to be Christians. And you think to yourself, compared to what are people basically good? Compared to the holy God? No way, Jose. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his holiness. And our goodness before him is nothing. All our righteousness, all our righteous deeds or claim to be righteous are like filthy rags. But of course, it's not just looking out there somewhere to say, yes, isn't it awful that churches out there are not preaching the real gospel? Yeah, isn't it terrible that they are confusing church with theater, entertainment, and use the church as an entertainment center with man-centered revival? But if that's all we are doing, then we have forgotten how Isaiah started. He did not start by saying, I live among a people of leprous lips. That not, he did not start like that. You see, Isaiah started by saying, I am a man of leprous lips. You see, Isaiah pointed the finger to himself. If you and I are going to have any effectiveness with the gospel, it will not be because we have said, aren't they awful out there? It will start because we have said, look how great is my ruin and my need before the Holy You see, we are not basically nice folks with an unfortunate tendency to mess up. We are proud, arrogant, self-centered, perverse, cruel, violent rebels in whom the stain of sin and sinfulness go down to the last atom in the last molecule in our entire body without the grace of God. When we see other people fall into sin, we tend to say to ourselves, I'm not that bad. In fact, I'm better than most. You see, we do not just mess up. We sin. <laughs> we, we consciously and unconsciously miss the targets that God has set up for us. There is no sufficient goodness in us to stand before the God of this amazing holiness. Uh, uh, listen, you and I are all ruined, doomed to eternal hell before God apart from Christ. Until we are ruined, until we humbly admit to ourselves that I am a miserable sinner and Jesus is a wonderful Savior, we really don't have anything to say to our world. Nothing. All we are saying is. We are just a little 
bit better than the next person. If we are not what we ought to be in this world, it is too often because we do not see our sin for the horror it is. Because we do not perceive God's holiness for the great glory that it is. When you know you have been ruined and deserve eternal hell, you speak differently. You speak more humbly. You speak more compassionately when you know you too are only a rotten sinner, saved fully and only by the grace of God. We have been seeing the glory of God in His sovereignty, transcendence, holiness. But there is something even greater. It's the glory of God in his remedy for sin. This heavenly sin that Isaiah is seeing is depicted as a royal court where God, both king and judge, sits in his royal court and judges sinner. As a holy God, he must punish sin. But the greater glory begins when we see the God of heaven, king and judge, the infinitely transcendent God have one of his servants go and touch this ruined prophet. Verse 6-7 Then one of seraphim, Isaiah said, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he has taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your leprous lips. And your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is forgiven. If God were to call Isaiah for ministry, for service, before this, Isaiah would have said no. What what was utmost in Isaiah's mind? My iniquity, my sin, my iniquity, my sin. There's no way I can pay it off. There's no, there's no way I can deal with it. I'm discovered. I am too wicked. I'm too vile. I'm too perverted. I'm not worthy. There's nothing I can do to hide from it. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. Unless something outside of me deals with it. Isaiah was so conscious of his depravity, so conscious of his sinfulness, so conscious of his unworthiness to be called into the ministry. Isaiah had no rest and no peace in his soul. So before ministry, there has to be forgiveness from God. God knows that Isaiah is a sinner who deserves to die. But the wonderful thing is that God takes the initiative to find a way to forgive Isaiah and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. What does the seraphim do? He takes the burning coal from the altar and he touches the lips of the prophet. How would you react when a burning coal touches your lips. Ouch! 
Huh? <laughs> and, and we hate the, the image awful burning. Have you ever wondered why the burning coal did not hurt Isaiah? I mean, he's just like us. He feels the pain. But why? It did not hurt him. How can the burning coal touch Isaiah and not consume him? How come it did not burn him? Because it burned Jesus Christ. How can Isaiah, a sinner, be able to stand before a holy God without being destroyed? Because God provides his holiness with sacrifice, holiness. Where did the coal come from? From the altar. Leviticus 16.12 tells us that burning coals were taken inside the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, where when the sacrifices were made to atone for sin, the smoke rises from it. But when will the smoke get extinguished? When God put his son Jesus on the altar of sacrifice to bear God's holy wrath on our behalf. Notice one of the seraphim got the coal that was red and glowing. I like a Puritan preacher described it in this way. It was a drop of the blood of Jesus that touched my lips and my sins were washed away. Jesus took upon himself the fire of God's wrath for his people. There on the cross, the covenant curse were pronounced upon Jesus and it says in the law, Cursed is he hanging on a tree. Galatians 3.15 Because God is holy, he must punish sin. Sin cannot stand for one second before a holy and righteous God. How can you be free from the punishment you deserve? How can you be forgiven from your sins? How can you be cleansed from your unrighteousness? How can you be adopted into God's family? How can you stand before the Holy God without condemnation? Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. That's how. How amazing is this love. The one who is entire, entirely fully holy. Christ sacrificed to give us holiness. And when we recognize how wondrous was that love. How close it came. How much it did for us. We fall down before him and say. Oh Lord how amazing is your love. I praise the name of Jesus. 
I praise the grace He has provided. Praise that He has forgiven me. My guilt is forgiven. My sins is atoned for. And despite my failing, I now rise again in the newness of life, in the assurance of grace. This is the wondrous effect of grace, isn't it? The glory of God in His remedy for sin. You see, we don't like the image of a heart-burning coal on Isaiah's lips or, or on our own lips at all. Until we see that, it is a sweet burning of a divine kiss. Look at what it did to Isaiah. The sweet burning of divine kiss has called Isaiah to respond with a ready and willing heart. We see the glory of God in his divine calling. In verse 8, God said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah answered the Lord, the one that he lies prostrate before. Here I am, send me. Could Isaiah, could Isaiah have, have said that if his sins have not been forgiven? No. If he had not been cleansed? No. If he had not been touched with the blood of Jesus from the altar? No. It only happens after God declares your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Did forgiveness come before because of grace? Yes. Did Isaiah earn it? Did you and I earn it? No. Was he better than other people or was he a, a leper among lepers? It's all of grace. His sin was taken away by an act of pure grace. You and I are cleansed, not by our own efforts or good deeds purely by the grace of God. Isaiah is now ready. He can smile now. huh? He smiled. He's happy. He's now ready for the ministry because he had an experience of forgiveness. You see, once the lips are made pure, purified by the fire of sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Isaiah can now join the song you see that? Before he could not sing. Now he can sing. He can participate in the heavenly song. Now Isaiah can participate with the choir in, in the choir with the angels. You see? Lips made holy signify a life made worthy. God has done something he has touched the prophet, the one who has just prostrated in the dust, now can sing with the angels and begin to serve. After God's cleansing, Isaiah was, was never the same man again. God changed him from the inside out. Have you ever experienced your depravity 
your wickedness, your sin. You never know the glory of forgiveness and the amazing love of God for you if you don't know the horror of your own depravity. And you will find no peace in your heart until you find the peace of forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you recognize you are a miserable sinner before the Holy God, you will see the greatest glory in this passage. And how do we know this is the greatest glory? Whenever the infinite becomes the intimate. Whenever the eternal intrudes into the temporal. Whenever the above intersects with the below. Whenever the heavenly comes down to the earthly. That is the wondrous glory. You will search history in vain to find another religion which has God becoming man to die as the sinner's substitute. None. Zero. The Allah of the Quran is so distant, so far off, so abstract that no one can know him. But the God of the Bible is noble through his son, Jesus Christ. After all, Isaiah is not just speaking about the God who, re- who remains transcendent above heaven. He is speaking of the God who is coming. And what's the name of this God in the very next chapter? Do you remember? He will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. The creator God became the incarnate word. To the people in the Old Testament, God revealed his glory in a different way. He revealed his heavenly glory visible in the tabernacle and in the temple. But in Jesus Christ, God revealed his glory visible yet another way. The Logos became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In John twelve forty one, we are giving the identity of the one who sat upon the throne. The Apostle John let us know that it was Jesus whom Isaiah encountered in the temple. The prophet Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So it was Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was on the throne that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Wow! You see the connection? The history of redemption finds its meaning, unity, power, and climax in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What a wonderful victory of the gospel, brothers and sisters. God has forgiven you. Christ has covered you with his holiness and now given you the ability to serve. My God knows the worst about me. His holiness exposes me and all the sins of my being. And he sent his son for me. And he forgives me. And he loves me. And I got to tell someone else. I cannot keep quiet. Hear my Lord in all my wrong, in all my futility and failing. Oh, send me. Send me to my home. Send me to my church. Send me to my community. Send me to my workplace. So I can tell them about the hope of heaven. Hear my Lord. Let them know the joy of your salvation. Here I am. Send me. If you receive the new life of God, there has to be a change, doesn't it? Has God changed your heart so that you desire Him? Has Christ become precious to you so that you want Him and love Him? You cannot live as a stranger to the God who has done it for you. Like Isaiah, you know what it is to be forgiven. You will be willing to serve the God who has forgiven you. Jesus, remember this, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. That's why Isaiah volunteers happily, gladly, before he had even heard what the task is. And if you read on, his task wasn't that easy. Okay, Preach to a hard and hard people. Nobody would listen to him. But he said, yes, Lord, send me. If God was willing to lay aside his infinite glory and lowering himself to live among us for our salvation, how could any cause be too great for us as we're seeking to serve him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus lived the life you never live, and he died the death you should have died. Isn't this enough to stir up your heart with joy and gratitude? What sacrifice could God ask of you that is too great. Moreover, our Lord wants us to know that our worship surpasses that of the seraphim. It's more wonderful than that of the seraphim because it centers in the Son of God now having come, now having fulfilled His work. Now our worship is more glorious because the access granted to us how so? The Son of God did not die for angels. He died for His redeemed people. You and me. When we read this passage, we think of these wonderful songs of the seraphim. But we have to understand, at the same time that we sing a song that the seraphim 
cannot never sing. We sing a song they will never sing. We sing as God's redeemed people. We don't have to cover our face. Faces. We, we, we don't need to cover our feet like the seraphim. Why? Because of the one who sits on the throne, the God-man, died for you and me and covered us with his righteousness. And through his finished work on the cross, we have become his bride. So we don't have to cover our feet. We don't need to cover what we are. We are invited entirely into his presence and to his heavenly banquet table and seated with him in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, as the redeemed people, you are to be ambassador for the good news. You are called to testify the heavenly reality and to join in the task of proclaiming the majesty and grace of our great and holy God to those around you. As you continue to do this, may the song of Isaiah continue to be on your lips and fill your lives as the joy of your salvation radiates to church and your community, the city of Houston, and your workplace, and your home, or wherever God put you. May it be true of your life that you join this song with the hosts of heaven, and the heavenly song is true of you yourself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. For my eyes have seen Hamelech, the king, Yahweh of armies, all the armies of heaven and earth. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the message of Isaiah. Without Christ, we would be consumed by the fire of your holiness. We pray that your holiness would impact our lives so we may walk humbly before you and others. Grant us to walk as Christ walked, to live in the newness of his life, the life of love, the life of faith, the life of holiness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.